Welcome to the North Sound Church Podcast. For more information about North Sound Church, please visit our website at northsoundchurch.com. Well, for those of you that are guests, um, it's a very dangerous thing to give the congregation the ability to say what they want to have a sermon on. So some of the things aren't too bad. Last week we talked about forgiveness, and uh, it's a difficult subject, but it's one that we mostly agree on in terms of of wanting to have forgiveness. But some wise guy or gal in the crowd suggested I talk about human sexuality today. And that's a challenging one, uh, I must say. And so here's my request to you, okay? So if I offend you because you're left of where I'm at, uh, please talk to me. And if I offend you because you're to the right of where I'm at, please talk to me. And I've learned a new term during COVID. It's called ghosting. And and ghosting means you just disappear, okay? (laughs) And we frankly have had a number of folks at North Sound ghosting Pastor Barry by just disappearing from the congregation and only later do I find out, well, they went here or they did this. So please don't ghost me as a result of the sermon this morning. Talk to me if you have insights or things that you think I may be missing. The rest of you can certainly uh, pray for me for the talk uh, today as well. So scripture values and human sexuality. So churches generally take one of four ways of approaching this topic. And you guys know me well enough that that's sort of my MO, right? To kind of lay it out and give you the options. So here's what churches tend to do. So one, um, one set of churches, uh, t- they tend to be mainline churches, and historically mainline churches are Episcopal, Lutheran, Methodist, and Presbyterian, t- typically. And many of the mainline churches, not all of them, but many of the mainline churches have adopted an affirming stance towards um, the various expressions, sexual identities that are a part of um, the current time that we are in. And uh, denominations are splitting. We'll talk a little bit more about that later over, over this issue. So... So one thing that you, you know, that you will know is that many of the churches within those denominations um, develop an affirming stance. Sometimes you can tell because they fly a rainbow flag outside of the church along with you know, whatever else is there. The second uh, way that churches approach this is sort of almost the, the, the polar opposite, and that is um, the fundamentalist churches. And the fundamentalist churches um, tend to be angry and tend to say things and use scripture in a way that is perceived by others as being hateful. So they will quote verses that, um, you know, that are very, very strong on the subject um, against that. And so um, they're, they're kind of known for that kind of an anti-perspective. And then there are churches that theologically are probably similar to us but they don't want to impact the growth of the church and how they relate to the community. And so while they may have a similar theology to us, which basically the sermon this morning is going to be about, they don't talk about it or they don't talk about it much. And the reason is, is that things like human sexuality uh, and abortion and, and other sort of social issues are controversial and they don't want to affect their outreach and the growth of the church. So they simply 
don't talk about it. It's kind of like uh, in, the, in the Navy years ago, in the military, we had a don't ask, don't tell policy. And theirs is kind of a uh, don't ask, don't tell. And unless you dig deep, you're not going to know what it is that they actually stand for on the topic. And then there is churches like us um, where we believe uh, that we have an understanding of what the scripture says about human sexuality. And every so often, relatively rare, but every so often I will address it um, because of the nature of the culture around us. Um, but we don't, we don't dwell on it. It's not the most important thing for us in terms of when we gather. But we try to articulate truth in the context of reasonableness and kindness in how we articulate biblical truth on the subject. So last week we talked about forgiveness. And there was a verse in Romans that I shared with you that I think would be a great tagline for a church, uh, for any Christian organization. If our tagline wasn't navigating life together, I would be tempted to, to have this one. <clears throat> Where Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. If possible, it's a caveat, because it's not always possible. As far as it depends upon you, we, we can't change another's behavior. We can only deal with ourselves. Live peaceably with all. I think there's a misperception about followers of Jesus Christ and our attitude toward other human beings who are different than us. To say that we are racist, homophobic, transphobic, etc., is, in my opinion, far from the truth. Most, if not all of us, have family or friends or work associates of other ethnicities. We have family or friends who are gay or perhaps transgender. We have family or friends who are heterosexual but live their lives as though sex is for recreation and moving on from one partner to another. Many of us have children or grandchildren who are living with their partner without benefit of marriage. We may disagree with them on some important things, but they all, all of the above, need to know that they're loved, that they're loved by us. And, and perhaps more importantly, that <clears throat> they're created in the image of God and they're loved by God. And so, regardless of anything else I say this morning, I want to leave that with you. And if you talk to anyone about the rest of the sermon, please communicate the truth, because nothing will take away from the truth that I have just shared with you in terms of opening up the scriptures and coming to an understanding of human sexuality. Now, if we could end it here <clears throat> by saying we just need to love everybody, we could go home. That would be easy. Um, but alas, uh, we are not able to do that. God's word says this, to obey is better than sacrifice from 1 Samuel. So, <clears throat> excuse me, in ancient Israel, when there was sin amongst the people, 
they would go through the process of sacrifice and sacrificing an animal and the animal would be slain in a ceremonial way and placed on the altar and then the animal sacrifice would be burned on behalf of the sin of the people. And it was quite a rigmarole, right? It it was quite a deal to have to go through this uh, process to slay an animal of one kind or another for the sin of the people. And so the verse here is just a very simple one. It says it's better to obey and not sin in the first place because then you don't have to go through all of this. So what are we to obey? If obedience is better than sacrifice, what are we called to obey? Well, clearly throughout the scripture, we're called to obey the will of God revealed in the scripture. And this is the crux of the matter under discussion today when we talk about scripture values and human sexuality. What is God's will for us, his people, as revealed in the scripture? Dan read for us this morning from the first chapter of Genesis, and because of the importance of this Context, I'm going to read it again for you. Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion. He goes with the plural because it's mankind or human beings. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply till the earth until uh, the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish in the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So the Christian perspective, the biblical perspective from our verse here and elsewhere is that from a historical perspective, it's been so very simple. From the beginning, God created man and woman. They have complementary parts. If you've never noticed You can notice today that men and women have complementary parts, and having complementary parts, that is part of the ability that we have to fulfill the promise, which is to go forward and multiply, essentially to take God's creation forward. Some would say that part of being in the image of God is the fact that just as God is the creator, we have the ability to create, to take creation forward as well. So what the Bible is also replete with stories of sexual failures, it never deviates from God's divine intention. People did, but God never did in his intention. In the New Testament, Jesus affirms marriage. Paul is explicit in the sanctity of marriage and defines the church even as the bride of Christ. And in Revelation, the whole Bible, just as it began essentially with marriage, concludes with the marriage supper of the Lamb. God's gift of sex is intended to be fulfilled in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. So if one believes what the Bible says, then this isn't particularly controversial. Having just come through Pride Month, we've seen a lot of flags and a lot of celebrations. How do we navigate this world that is a complete, uh, increasingly complex? Instead of two sexes or genders, we have many sexual identities. Judy's going to put up a slide I came across this week 
The slide is from the county of Los Angeles, and it's articulating different sexual identities and the flag that is associated with those sexual identities. I don't expect you to be able to read them, but it's a far cry from male and female. In our discussion today, we believe we have to start with the truth and the source of truth for our lives and then translate this into how we live in relationship to others. It's hard to believe that in 2008, 15 years ago, President Obama, when he was elected, was unsure about gay marriage. He was not sure whether it was the right thing for the country or not. And you know what happened, but when you think about the fact that we're only 15 years later, the change around human sexuality is head-spinning. It, it's literally just, it, it's just hard to believe how quickly this has happened, how quickly we've gone from two genders to this kind of sexual identity. The perspective on sexual morality that many of us grew up with has been turned upside down. Isaiah said, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Oddly enough, our discussion today really isn't much about human sexuality. Our discussion today is more about a worldview. And this morning, in the rest of the time that we have together, we're going to talk about worldviews, particularly a biblical worldview. There are other religions that you may be familiar with, and each religion has its own worldview. So Buddhism from the East has its own worldview. Hinduism from India has its own worldview. <clears throat> Islam has its own worldview. What is interesting and important for us to understand is that what we have been dealing with in the United States over the last number of years has been another worldview, and the worldview is called secular humanism. And I want to suggest to you that secular humanism is really more than a worldview. Secular humanism is essentially a religion it's its own religion with its own evangelists. So we must consider the fact that we live in a secular age. For the first um, 1,500 years after Constantine, so there was the first 300 years of the church, there was Constantine became the emperor. We had the Council of Nicaea from which we get the Nicene Creed. And then we have about 1,500 years or so, roughly, to bring us up to the present. And until... Not too many years ago, most people had the furniture of the Christian faith. Most Americans had the furniture of the Christian faith in their head. And Christendom gave us that furniture. And Christendom wasn't all good. It was good and bad, but the, the fact of it was we had the furniture. So in the 1980s, Pastor Allen and I were in the same church and he would do a concert series over two weekends, and there were about 12,000 people that would come over those two weekends to the concerts. And we would have an altar call at the end of the concerts because people came to Christ. And the thing that motivated the choir to serve was that people came to Christ. 
It's my belief that in the 1980s, most people had the furniture. Most people had been to Sunday school. Most people understood the dynamics of the Christian faith. So really, when they gave their heart to the Lord at the concert, in most cases, it was a rededication or some kind of a, of a, of a, of a catalyzing of that, that latent faith that was within them. Do you know when we do Christmas in Edmonds, you may have noticed we don't do an altar call. We don't do an altar call, by and large, because folks aren't there who need to hear the message. But secondly, because they don't respond. And one of the reasons they don't respond is because they don't have the furniture anymore. So we do a benevolent concert, a benefit concert, rather than an evangelistic concert, because that's the way the culture has gone, and that is what we do It's important to understand that the issues of sexuality in our culture are only the tip of the iceberg. Below the water level and more widespread is the unknowing acceptance in our culture of secular humanism. We call it an ideology, but as I said earlier, we may as well call it a religion because it shapes how postmodern people think. Individualism, consumerism, secularism, humanism, materialism reflect worldviews other than Christian. In many ways, they reflect a secular religion with its own belief system. And, and the challenge for us is that this worldview, this religion, this belief system is generated by secular colleges and universities, the media, the books we read, the movies and TV shows we watch, along with the perspectives articulated in social media. I don't know if your experience is like Barb's and mine, but I expect it is. We've been watching a series recently, and, and it's so frustrating because overall it can be a great program, but some writer has to put in the secular humanistic values, and so in the middle of the program there will be a scene that's like, you want to pull your hair out. Why do you have to do that? We know, but, but they're evangelists. Hollywood, by and large, are evangelists for the secular humanistic worldview. And unfortunately, it dominates education, academia, our government, and our entertainment. Another pastor in our state gave me a coloring page that was reported to come from a kindergarten class. And it illustrates both the evangelism of secular humanism and its philosophy. Notice, as Judy puts this up, notice that at the top of the coloring page, it says queer affirming. That expresses a sexual identity. And then it says everybody has the right to choose who they love and the kind of family they want by listening to their own heart and mind. I'm amazed that this would appear at the kindergarten level, but I want you to understand that the tip of the iceberg is the queer affirming, the, the sexual identity piece, and the worldview, the religion, is what is articulated below, which basically says you just need to be how you feel. We know what's good for ourselves by how we feel. We read about a similar theme in the book of Judges when in those days we read there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And perhaps more importantly is the fact that this was largely the basis of original sin. 
God knew what was best for Adam and Eve. He gave them clear instruction. And just about the only thing they had to be obedient to was this instruction. So we're back to the beginning again. We talked about God's intention in Genesis 1 and 2. In Genesis 3, we have original sin. Verse 6 of chapter 3, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So we're surrounded by secular humanism as a religion in our culture. What forms a Christian worldview? What, what makes us different? The answer is God's revelation to us. And we have some revelation that is called general revelation, and we have God's revelation to us that's called special revelation. God's general revelation is what we see in the beauty around us. God speaks in here of the heavens declaring the glory of God and the sky above proclaiming his handiwork. Yesterday, Barb and I were sitting out back in our backyard, and Barb is amazing with the garden and the flowers we have. And we were talking yesterday afternoon about how could you not believe in God when you see the intricacy of all the different flowers that are there and the beauty, it just, it makes us go vertical. It's, it's just seeing beauty makes you think about God. And indeed, that's general revelation. It's God revealing himself to us that way. Special revelation is God's revelation in Jesus Christ. That is a special revelation to us. And also, his word, the Bible, and along with the word, reason, with which we can interpret the Bible and what is going on around about us. So we believe the Bible is the inspired word of God. Paul says this about it. He says in 1 Timothy, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So in this time in history when values are becoming relative, when I just want to do what I feel, the word of God still presents absolute truth. Congress may make laws, the Supreme Court may make decisions, but ultimately above them, is the scriptures and God's revelation to us, which is true for all time. So how do we construct a Christian worldview? We do it from the scriptures. We understand God's revelation, and we are to live our lives then in the best possible way by following his truth. Unfortunately, the mainline denominations that I mentioned earlier have adopted a worldview that no longer prioritizes scripture. Maybe you've seen in the news that the United Methodist Church is uh, undergoing a split. In the 1960s, it was a denomination with 11 million adherents, and now it's down to 6.5 million. This year, 4,172 conservative congregations have left and joined a new denomination called the Global Methodist Church. At first blush, it seems to be generated by a different understanding of human sexuality, but I want to suggest it's probably not about how people feel about LGBTQ-type issues, but rather it's about the source of authority 
for our worldview. Joe Carter expresses it in this article for the Gospel Coalition. He says, the commitments required of each side's source of authority, this is within the United Methodist Church, but it could be any mainline denomination. The commitments required of each side's source of authority makes it difficult for them to peacefully coexist within institutions. While the United Methodist Church is the latest and largest modern religious institution to split because it cannot reconcile the demands of scripture and secular infused individualism, it likely won't be the last. I previously mentioned my conversation with another Navy chaplain, an active duty chaplain who, after I worked with David up at Oak Harbor at Whidbey Island Naval Air Station, I worked with Gordon down uh, at uh, uh, Pier 36 with the Coast Guard. And he and I developed a relationship, and one day I said, Gordon, um, how is it that you can affirm what your denomination affirms in light of the clear teaching of Scripture. And he said, well, we have a different understanding of Scripture. And, and, and what I've come to realize is this, is that this is the Bible. And what I've come to realize is that many of us hold the Bible as authoritative. We are under the Bible. It's our authority. And we may disagree about some interpretations, so we may disagree about whether women should be in ordained ministry. We may disagree about the role of the Holy Spirit uh, in the church, whether everybody should be speaking in tongues. We may disagree about um, whether we have free will or whether it's purely God's election that chooses us. There, there are a number of these things, but, but essentially we, we go to the book and we make our case based upon this authority. The problem for our friends who are now allowing the influence of secular humanism into the church is that they're now essentially saying, well, that's not how we, that's not how we see it. And they have essentially become their own authority over the scripture. And, and when they become their own authority over the scripture, then in a sense, in my opinion, all is lost because once we start saying in the scripture what is true and what is not true, where does that ever end? Where does it ever stop? We, we have human sexuality today, perhaps, but what's next if we become the authority instead of under the authority? So we face a fundamental choice as individuals and churches. Do we embrace the culture and its trajectory for the future? Or do we embrace the word of God as divine revelation of truth? Embracing the truth of Scripture has consequences. We may be seen as bigoted when we are not. Thankfully, in recent cases before the Supreme Court, the right of freedom of expression, the First Amendment, the ability not to be compelled to say something we, 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 we don't want to be able to say has been affirmed by the Supreme Court. Those that would want us to understand it differently want to say that it's discrimination because people who are gay or transgender or whatever aren't being served. That also can't be farther from the truth. In the case of the web design and in the case of the baker, gay people were definitely served. It was only when it got to forcing them to articulate a message 
that they felt they couldn't articulate, that it went up through the courts. But the fact that it had to go up to the Supreme Court of the United States says that there is a consequence for us choosing to affirm biblical truth. I want to again emphasize the issue here is not sex, but rather the source of authority for our lives. Sex happens to be the topic of the day, but it's not the fundamental problem. When we ourselves become the authority, we redefine the authority of God's word. So we may disagree with other Bible Christians, but the fact of the matter is we agree in what the word says and that it's our authority. And in my opinion, having studied this, to try to come to a different understanding that affirms other alternative lifestyles requires hermeneutical and exegetical gymnastics. Opponents of gay marriage proved prophetic when they said, if we redefine the essence of marriage from what it has been to our own definition, polygamy is next. Recently, the American Psychological Association launched a consensual non-monogamy task force. And according to the APA, the American Psychological Association website, this task force will advocate for people who choose to engage in sexual relationships with more than one partner at a time. And now I'm quoting from the website. These include, but are not limited to, people who practice polyamory, open relationships, swinging, relationship anarchy, and other types of ethical non-monogamous relationships. Ethical non-monogamous relationships sounds like a oxymoron, a contradiction of terms. Finding love and or sexual intimacy, they say, is a central part of most people's life experience. However, the ability to engage in desired intimacy without social and medical stigmatization is not liberty for all. This task force seeks to address the needs of people who practice consensual non-monogamy, including their intersecting marginalized identities. So this isn't some offbeat group talking about kinky sex. This is the American Psychological Association talking about how people that engage in these unethical practices, we need to change the way we think about them so that they're not stigmatized. There's a natural response to a culture that has become its own authority of defining right and wrong for itself. With reference to the fact that we choose to follow scripture, I, I found the, the, the statement of a, a, a person who blogged, who said something, a psychologist who said something about this task force and what their plan is, initiating polygamy, affirming polygamy. She says, my uncertainty about this makes me uncomfortable because I'm not sure what it's based on. I have always advocated for the legalization of same-sex marriage and disagreed with the idea of marriage only being something that should legalize the relationship between a man and a woman. As marriage is something that is used to legalize a loving relationship, why should it be limited by gender? I have many gay friends who are clearly in loving relationships, so this concept seemed autocratic and obvious to me, automatic and obvious to me. But... This is what she goes on to say. She says, yet for some reason, taking the next step to legalizing marriage between multiple partners isn't automatic for me. 
At the same time, I am also not in agreement with the arguments that are current being used by the conservatives to shoot down the practice of polyamory altogether. The psychologist says she's not sure why she's uncomfortable with extending, having now granted gay marriage, she's uncomfortable extending it to group marriage. But she doesn't know why. I know why. (laughs) You know why. And we know why because Scripture reveals God's intention is for one man and one woman to be united for life And anything else within our culture has consequences for all of us. So we live at a time when culture has been turning increasingly away from the values of Scripture. And I'm descending toward the, I'm descending towards the the runway. And we are just about to land this airplane How are Christians to engage in this world under these circumstances? Do we become a vocal minority? It's an option. Do we become a vocal minority? Do we retire from the public square into our own enclaves? What is it we have to say as committed followers of Jesus Christ for the common good for the good of everyone in our city, in our state, in our nation. What does it mean when we pray Sunday by Sunday, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? How do we engage in a culture that is increasingly hostile to Christian values, yet so desperately needs the healing that Christ can bring to individuals and communities? Is there a best way for us to engage in the common good because we believe in the values of Scripture and that the values of Scripture is exactly what our community needs? Friends, I don't have all the answers, but as committed followers of Jesus Christ who trust him and his word, we need to pursue this together. And with our staff and with our elders and with you as the congregation, we're, we're working on this. We're, we're navigating what is our role? How do we engage as a church for the common good of our community? There are a couple of things as I close of which we're certain. One is the great commandment tells us to love our neighbors. We're to love our neighbors as ourselves. This means, friends, in our community and in our hearts, there's no place for racism, sexism, homophobia, transphobia, hate speech, or discrimination. We must be advocates of justice for all. The second thing I know for sure is that we must humbly recognize our own brokenness. Friends, we struggle, we sin, we fail. But we must humbly cling to the truth that is revealed in the Word of God that in spite of our failures, we cannot abandon truth or we will be lost. We're broken human beings who together point to the truth of God's Word and His work in our lives to bring healing and wholeness into our lives and into the life of our community. We are not 
the judges of what is right and wrong around us? The scripture is. We can only point to them as the source of truth for our lives. It's important, I think, to understand this, that the, the truth that we have, the, the truth that we are confronted with is one of being able to um, being able to articulate in our lives what it is that God would have for us and what he would have for us as human beings. The Christian approach to failure is to recognize when we have sinned that we repent and that with our repentance we come back into a right relationship with God. We repented when we did the Lord's Prayer today together. We repented when in our prayer we took time to pause in that moment and to take our requests before the Lord. The challenge with those who may want to say, well, I sin this way and you sin that way is the difference between recognizing our sin, recognizing the authority of God, and coming into a place of forgiveness as opposed to turning our backs on God's word and deciding that we are the authority for what is right in our own lives and having no interest in repentance. We honestly don't know, friends, what the future holds. It's possible the culture is going to go in the opposite direction of truth, that it's continuing and will continue to go in the opposite direction of truth. Rod Dreher uh, wrote a book uh, called Live Not By Lies, A Manual for Christian Dissidents. And in his book, he basically says things are going to get worse and worse. But we also have from the lessons of history, the recognition that history is cyclical and that the pendulum tends to move back and forth in history and that we may very well find that this trajectory that we're on, that we're so concerned about, will change and will move in the other direction. This is the upswing, how America came together a century ago and how we can do it again by Robert Putnam. Robert Putnam wrote Bowling Alone. Some of you may be familiar with that from years ago. Robert Putnam is a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And, and the book is replete with charts and graphs and all sorts of things in which he makes the case that things are going to change and that it's going to move in a different and a much better direction. Which one is true? I don't know. But I do believe revival is a historical reality. In spite of the many things that I don't know, there's one thing that I do know. On Friday here at North Sound, we had the memorial service for Nancy Zevenbergen's mom, Joan. These beautiful flowers here are um, given to us by the family for our services today. It was inspiring to hear her story. Nancy chose one hymn that I believe was meaningful to her mom. And as we were singing it congregationally and I was down there on the front row, I looked at it and I thought, wow, wow, the power of hope is so tremendous in the midst of our present uncertainty. And here are the words that I close with this morning. This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. 
This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heaven ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. Above all else, remember that. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of your presence. Thank you, Lord, for your word, a lamp to our feet and a light to our pathway. Lord, may we both discern truth. May we, may we be hearers of your word. Give us wisdom to be doers of your word in this time in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen.